So we're going to go straight on um, to our next presentation, and then after this, we'll again have some time for questions, then the tea break, and then we'll come back for a plenary uh, discussion at the end. We'll have a lot more time for discussion. So I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Claire Bartland, who's lecturer in education at University Campus Suffolk, um, who is talking about STEM ambassadors and equality in higher education. Hi. Um I'm coming at this from a sort of very different perspective, really. I, um, m- the focus of my study was specifically student ambassadors working in STEM subjects, and I looked at them working in medicine and in engineering at two different universities, so it was a very focused study. My interest in was student ambassadors, I'm sure a lot of you know, sort of became very entrenched in higher education under New Labour, um, they formed part of their drive to widen participation up to 50%. Obviously, since the coalition have come into power, that drive has disappeared. Um, but widening particip- but student ambassadors are now a sort of fixed part of the HE landscape and contribute to sort of access agreements, um, recruitment drives at, at, at universities across the UK. They're still a feature of widening participation initiatives in other parts of the world. Australia have, has a big drive which, which incorporates the use of student ambassadors. Um, in the UK specifically, there are now 28,000 STEM ambassadors who are ambassadors from industry going in and working with schools at the moment. So this is a massive thing that's going on. My interest in student ambassadors... Um, came from sort of a sort of long route. And I'll just talk briefly about how I I got interested in, in them specifically. I um, started off, I was teaching, uh, I was head of department, and I got into research and evaluation working with Anna, she's here actually, at South Bank University. I did a fellowship there. And my, I was very, very focused on practice, how to make things work better, you know? Um, I was always troubled, really, by widening participation generally, you know, and I know Penny Jane Book has written extensively about the problematic of having um, these young people as aspiration raising, as if there's these groups of people that don't have high enough aspirations, and I think, you know, Louise, Louise has pointed out that actually young people do have high aspirations, what they lack is actual understanding and knowledge of, of different possibilities for their future. Um, I then got involved working with the Royal Academy of Engineering and I was very taken with the opportunities that STEM specifically could offer young people. Um, I I think Matthew Harrison at the Royal Academy has worked with people at the Institute of Education and recently sort of put some quite extensive evidence together to suggest there's a wage premium associated with STEM qualifications. So, you know, people are better off and obviously for... For women, I think that's a massive issue when they're not accessing these careers. So I was, I was quite, you know, this seemed to me to be a genuine need to address this issue. Um, and I thought as well, you know, well, clearly as well, technology is everywhere. We're all increasingly reliant on technology in our lives. So inevitably, uh, and there's a lot to suggest that the demand for these skills in the workforce is only going to increase and actually there's a skills gap. Um, 
So there's a genuine urgent need, not just for the economy, but I think for individuals, for, and it has huge potential for widening participation and, and groups who are underrepresented in higher education. And I think there are jobs within local communities in STEM, and also you don't have to go to higher education. There are jobs, you know, there are get-out routes. So it sort of deals with another issue that I was very concerned about with this sort of discourse of meritocracy, that somehow, you know, there's, there's some that deserve to do well and get good jobs, and then there are rest who really, you know, fall by the wayside and, and, and sh- almost don't deserve to be considered. And there are actually sort of step-out routes in STEM for for these people as well. So on a number of fronts, I sort of felt quite driven by, by this agenda. Now, specifically my background, um, the background of the study, sorry, it's an ethnographic study. It was actually my PhD study. Um, I collected the data over two years, and the study centred on two contrasting universities within the same geographic area in London, Bankside's a new university, and it, it was interesting actually because when I sort of started off on these on this study, I, th- I hadn't realised how the universities themselves were so stratified and how that was so subject related. In fact, um, so Bankside's a new university was actually set up in Victorian times for and, and specifically with an agenda to upskill um, people within the geographic area specifically in technology, so it had very established engineering courses because it came up through that route. Royal, a traditional elite university, actually is very established in medicine, a traditional elite subject. It doesn't actually run undergraduate degrees in engineering because, for various reasons, engineering courses have been cut in a lot of institutions because they're not seen to be cost-effective, uh, you know, which is a sort of sign of times for engineering, I think. Um, And I was interested in engineering and medicine because there's such a nice contrast between the two, if you like, because they started off medicine, similarly to engineering now, had low participant rates rates of women, and now women actually outnumber men. Um, So engineering is a strategically important and vulnerable subject. I always think that sounds like some dodgy disease, but anyway, it's... um, 13% 13% of the undergraduate population were women in 2009, which is extremely low. It attracts predominantly middle-class male students, often people, sort of going back to Louise's point, who've, who've had some sort of family connection with engineering, in fact, particularly for girls. And some of the ethnic minority groups are uh, underrepresented. In medicine, as I said, women now outnumber men on undergraduate courses. And some ethnic minority and lower socioeconomic groups are significantly underrepresented. What's interesting in medicine is the high proportion, I mean with both subjects, but medicine even more so, privately educated students. Um, I think with engineering, and again sort of touching on what Louise has already talked about, that there's a real image problem. And I've done a lot of interviews with young kids about engineering, and there's this perception that it's for blokes, predominantly. It's mucky, very oily. Um, I had one sort of group of, and they sort of ten-year-olds telling me that they wouldn't want to do engineering because they'd have to have a shower every day, and it would just be really boring. And that kept coming up. You know, it's surprising because they associate it with mechanics, 
um, you know, people, and in fact, um, Coronation Street and EastEnders sort of figures came up. And they, yeah, and they also see it because a lot of them have engineers in the family, you know, i.e. people in London, this was people that fix boilers and stuff, or their dads men computers and are in that sort of field. So they see, it as, see people as fixers rather than creators. Now, just briefly, I want to outline the way in which these schemes operated because I think it's quite significant how the sort of partnership working actually in, impacted on the practices. So you had, at this time, AIM Higher, which is a massive government-funded project which I, I'm sure everybody knew about, which has subsequently um, been, been finished. You had the higher education institutions themselves, um, project managers from the widening participation units, and more senior management. Um, and then at Royal, there was a particular scheme called the medical, which I've called the medical access scheme. You've got the further education colleges, schools, um, and borough coordinators who often kind of spoke for teachers in schools. And then there were external organisations and charities. And at the time of the study, there was a project, a hefty funded project called the Accessing Engineering Project at Bankside, which was a big project. And I think impacted on the type of activities going on because it drew in subject experts in a way that a lot of widening participation activity doesn't or didn't. But I think it's important to note these contributors and the way that they interacted, and as I'll sort of suggest later on, I think that was significant. Well, there are a number of policy assumptions associated with student ambassadors um, and this is from Hefke. Coordinators commend the way in which interaction with higher education students can play a part in breaking down cultural barriers and the way in which ambassadors can make higher education cool in schools. Uh, that makes me very nervous. Personally, I don't know how you feel about um, An evaluation of the student associate scheme for the TDA is also cited in this report. By being close in age and experience, student associates can relate to the issues young people face. My question is, is this automatic? You know, do you get a young person in a school, put them in a group of teenagers, and do they automatically aspire to be like these people? And I think, as Louise highlighted, there's a real problem with this assumption that just because somebody's young, that, and, and maybe, I don't know, the same gender or the same ethnicity, that they're automatically going to become role models in these young people's eyes. Now, there's very little um, research on student ambassadors and their impact, or, or, or the learning that takes place, certainly educational research. Um, there's various research that says that from the student ambassador's point of view, there's a lot of benefits. And you know it's fairly clear that there is in terms of their employability, in terms of their confidence. Um, for pupils, Santos and Higham did a review recently of a lot of the work that came out of the higher partnerships, and suggested again for pupils, student ambassadors could help with confidence and can improve their understanding of HE. The Aim Hires Associates scheme, which was one of the biggest student ambassador schemes 
um, during 2008 and 2009. It was interesting reading the evaluation of that because it was quite mixed. And I think while it said it did raise awareness of higher education, that there was a lot of issues to do with behaviour and student ambassadors sort of not quite knowing their place and feeling they needed more support in terms of managing the behaviour of young people. And I think, interestingly, a study in the North East conducted by um, Taylor, which is just a small study uh, about students into schools, she sort of points to the fact that actually, in her study, there was a sort of polarising effect with student ambassadors, with a sense of younger students and student ambassadors kind of almost being divided on class terms with us and them, a sense of, you know, they're not like us, we're not like them, on both sides. So, one of the issues I found with um, the research that was undertaken about ambassadors, and this was, I think, driven by the kind of, I don't know, Hodkinson calls it the audit society, you know, our obsession with evidence-based practice and, and, and rooting what we do in terms of evidence that it works, that what happened with a lot of ambassador research, or, sorry, not ambassador research, but sort of research into aim higher projects, was that they were desperately trying to prove impact. So the focus was constantly on what was the impact of these projects. Um, and actually, with student ambassadors, I think this is why it was so little research, under-research, was it's actually almost impossible to say this is an impact. You know, some of these activities lasted for half a, half a day, maybe a day, maybe a week. So how can you possibly claim impact? Um, now, Hodkin and, Hodkinson and McClough write interestingly, I think, about this focus on the outcomes of learning, the static products of learning, and suggest that it's all indicative of seeing learning as acquisition. And I suggest that this really isn't a useful way of conceptualising learning in, the, in these contexts, and actually what we need to do is unpick the learning processes, what, what's actually happening. And I think Hodkinson talks about learning as becoming, and I think the idea of identity being central to learning processes is absolutely vital, and again, something that Louise has already highlighted. Um, Miriam David outlines the need for a more nuanced understanding of teaching and learning, development of social scientific understanding of teaching and learning in different settings and how diverse learning occurs. So, the approach I developed was multi-stranded. Um, I follow Stephen Ball in, in sort of trying to draw on a range of concepts and theories to unpick what is going on in these contexts. So specifically, I, I used um, Foucault, sort of a Foucauldian discourse analysis and I actually followed Willig's <coughs> approach, which is, um, she identifies discursive constructions identifies wider discourses that relate to those discursive constructions, then considers action orientation, you know, why people have said what they've said, what that means about their positionings, how they're located, and um, the impact of that on subjectivity. So, I mean, I didn't follow that explicitly, but I followed that quite. But I also, uh, yes, learning theory as well, and I'll come back to that, um, Coley, Hodkinson and, and Malcolm. But I also... Use, specific, use grounded theory and I think everyone began to think I'd gone a bit loopy because I was frantically using, looking at every single 
conversation I had with every single ambassador and every single context I looked at and trying to see if there were patterns. So, you know, using Willig, but seeing what happened in a different context. Because what I found was, what I expected to find wasn't quite what I was seeing, and I was trying to unpick why that was the case. Um, the participants... were largely from deprived boroughs in London with extremely low participation rates. The ambassadors were predominantly first-generation HE, um, ethnically diverse, but a large portion of black African students. And the data actually consisted of interview conversations with project organisers, um, observation of activities and meetings at the universities themselves, and informal conversations and focus groups with, in total, 41 pupils and 16 student ambassadors at Royal, 71 pupils and 16 student ambassadors at Bankside. Um, but so those conversations varied in length and depended a little bit on my access to them. So, in terms of my findings then, I, I organised my data into three dominant discourses, the first of which was marketing. There was teaching and learning and social relationships and identities. Um, and marketing was dominant in the accounts of organisers, the ambassadors, and even, I was quite surprised to find, in the pupils' accounts. And what was interesting, I think, is that Although I wouldn't want to criticise the widening participation officers at these institutions, they were deeply committed, but they were located in recruitment in the universities, and they were very much subsumed within those discourses. And I think at, at Bankside that seemed relatively unproblematic, because really the the sort of cohorts of widening participation students, although I hate that term, but um, matched quite well with the university, ethnically diverse, um, sort of working class, local, a lot of them. It didn't fit so well at Royal. And so there was this tension at Royal um, for the widening participation coordinators. And th this is one manager who says, uh, slowly the internal pressures mount. There is a benchmark and you're asked what you're doing to meet it in terms of getting students in. It's lovely you're doing this charity work, but, you know. So there was this kind of aim higher stuff, charity work. Um, the university would only actually fund gifted and talented work. You know, so anything that wasn't gifted and talented was kind of viewed as irrelevant, you know. Um, now... Most of the schemes I looked at were gifted and talented, but in deprived areas. But what sort of tends to happen is that actually there's a danger of these schemes just reinforcing existing patterns of stratification because they're actually targeting different people because of these funding mechanisms and because of the, the sort of target markets that they're being directed into by management. Now, these were successful, you know, and you know, especially at Royal. You know, they were very successful at marketing the institution. Obviously, 
for me, that's problematic in some ways. If, you, if you're talking about widening participation generally, um, and I'll talk about, obviously, medicine at Royal in a bit more detail later. But associated with these marketing discourses were related neoliberal discourses of individual individualisation and employability. And um, it was quite interesting how these were located at the different universities. This is from Royal, and this is fairly typical of um, what, the student, what was sort of a common discourse amongst the student ambassadors. Chanel says, and they were very, very committed, these student ambassadors, to trying to get more younger pupils like themselves into Royal to do medicine. You know, they were driven um, to do so. But she says, yes, you don't have to come from an upper-class background or a grammar school to get to university. You can come from where they are coming from. There's no real boundaries apart from your actual expectations in your head, I think. It's like if you, don't, if, if you think you won't be able to make it, then that's going to limit you in where you're going. If you think, I can do this, I can achieve what I want to achieve, then that will give you inspiration to go. And if there is someone telling you, you know, I came from where you came from, and I come from a lower privileged background, and I'm here... It inspires them. I mean, her awareness that she is from a lower privileged background, that was absent at Bankside. So her positioning within the university, and I think this resonates very much with Diane Ray's work, sort of highlights her lack of fit, if you like, with the, with the other students at the university. Um, but apart from that, I think this is problematic in terms of the relationship she forms with the younger students, because... In structural terms, not to knock what Royal's doing, it's great. And they're one of only three institutions in the country that have got this sort of foundation degree programme that enables students to come who haven't got the straight A's. You know, So it is a very good scheme and it's very successful at getting, getting students in, but it only gets a very small number of students in. You know, it's, a, it, it's a tiny, tiny number of students. So these, these students going out and saying, you can do medicine, you can do it. Well, the structural limitations are such that they probably can't. And um, Del Delgado, I can never pronounce his name, but um, writes quite passionately about this. He, he's a lawyer in America, and he gets, sort of kept getting dragged out as a role model to um, various schools. And he said, statistically, these kids are more likely to be pro-basketball pro, pro players than they are to be lawyers. You know, so... How am I helping by doing this? And I think that there is an issue there. That there is, you have to have a match with what these young people can actually aspire to and whether it's realistic. Um, and I think there's an, a, another danger, and I know Karen Evans at the Institute has written about this, that, that um, young people can ascribe failure to themselves. These individualised discourses mean that if they fail in becoming doctors, it's their own fault. They've just not done well enough. They've not worked hard enough. I mean, they're not bright enough. You know, and it's all ascribed to their own inadequacies rather than to the structural constraints that, that, that they're in, you know, the types of schools that they're in specifically. Um, at Bankside, the employability discourse is very different but very powerful, they need to be professional, corporate, they're representing the institution they're working for, and this is really dominant. Um, and it really sort of seemed to filter into the students' discourse, and I remember this was one of the earliest things I came across, and I, I spoke to Penny, because Penny was supervising at the time, 
and I was customer services, you know, <laughs> just not what I was expecting to hear, but obviously this dominant discourse had filtered through. And I, uh, with this, I think that there's just a danger that pupils are too aware that they're being sold stuff, and it can actually alienate them. And Fabian, who actually wanted to do engineering, bizarrely enough, was quite motivated, was attending a, a sort of residential course in engineering, said, oh, I just don't really want to know, I'm not bothered, you know, I already know what you can do for you, just leave me alone, because, you know, she's getting this sort of hard sale on a daily basis. So I, I think it's, um, it can be problematic, this, this very kind of sales-orientated approach. So I think this, the prominence of these sort of marketing discourse raised a number of questions. Um, in terms of aspiration raising, what specifically are we trying to do? And I think that there needs to be a much more carefully worked out idea of what we're trying to do that actually matches something that's useful and viable for these young people. It's no good just saying they need to raise their aspirations. Um, if we're upskilling the workforce to sustain the needs of the global economy, of the national economy, are the needs real? You know, are we are we sustaining them in a in a direction that there's going to be real and viable jobs? I, I think in STEM there are, which is, as I say, why I was interested. And you know, are we actually doing something which is going to promote equality in HE? Now, another dominant discourse was about learning. I mean, I've, I've sort of joined this up, but learning practices and identities and the importance of learning contexts. Um, and discourses related to teaching and learning were notably different in a different learning context. And as I say, this wasn't quite what I anticipated because I'd done an evaluation looking at student ambassadors before and I had this quite simplistic idea okay, if you put student ambassadors in for a long time, like, you know, for a week's course or something, or over a long period, they're going to build relationships. If, they're, if it's a short time, you know, it's harder for them to build relationships. Um, but actually, that's not what I found necessarily, and I found in, you know, sometimes in one day, student ambassadors that seem to have formed these really close bonds with young people, whereas on one, you know, one sustained activity, um, there was virtually seemingly no relationship at all. So I, I, I sort of conceptualised this in terms of um, Coley, Hodkinson and Malcolm's idea of informal and formal attributes in, the, in these learning contexts, um, which they say inevitably changes the nature of the learning. Now this was one of the extended interactions that were going on. Mass workshop went on for months. It was an after-school activity located, so to sort of relate to what Hodkinson, Hodkinson and Co say, its location was in the school, so quite a formal location. Um, the process they were going through mass papers, GCSE papers. Um, the purpose is obviously to train them up for the exam. Um, the, in terms of the sort of way the sessions run, they're very didactic. You know, the student ambassador saying you need to do this and you've done this wrong. So perhaps completely unsurprisingly, the students, the young people sort of conceptualise these people as 
or positioned them as like teachers, but not very good ones, you know, sort of failing teachers. The teachers were frankly a bit rubbish, but were better than nothing. Um, Yvonne says, I used to argue with Adam. I would say, that's the way to do it. He'd say, that, that, that's another way. I, I knew a formula that, what's it called? Where you do that table thing. The green method. Yeah, the green method. I would say, that's the way you do it. And he was like, no, you have to do that. And I went and told Miss P, and she said it was green method. So, you know, those sort of arguing, because obviously these student ambassadors aren't trained to teach maths GCSE. Um, and the trouble with this, and it comes back to the stakeholders' investments in this, is the school's agendas are, in a lot of these deprived areas, they're desperate to meet their benchmarks. You know, if they don't meet their benchmarks, senior management are going to get sacked by, <laughs> as a result of an officer inspection. So the benchmarks are everything. So they see student ambassadors useful resource specialists in maths, get them in, we'll do some training, you know, it's cheap tutoring. But I think it's dangerous to conflate that, and it may be that that's useful. They probably need more training in maths GCSEs and how to teach it. But you can't conflate that with them becoming role models, because in those contexts, they're not role models, you know, or they didn't appear to have any, any impact as role models. And they're not sort of viewed as trusted sources of information to, to follow on from um, Stephen Ball's work. Right. These accounts were where students had worked collaboratively with student ambassadors in contexts where they were sort of doing problem-based learning activities. Um, so they're working in sort of social constructivist ways on projects with ambassadors. These were planned often by other people. Um, the medical access scheme, this was from the summer school. So the student ambassadors were just facilitators. They weren't involved in managing the behaviour of students. Uh, and this one, the last two, was from tr this train tracks event, which was an event that coordinated industry, student ambassadors and STEM ambassadors to help on sort of problem-based learning activities. They're actually building train tracks, building stations, having to calculate the mass, buying in, buying in materials. So it's quite a complex, complexly organised activity. So I don't want to suggest that informal, in, these informal contexts mean lack of planning. They were carefully planned, um, but they drew in subject experts. And, and I think it's sort of clear that there are some sort of powerful messages coming, coming out from working with these student ambassadors in these contexts um, and some sort of identification processes. You know, Martin said, most of us here want to go into medicine, so we've had very similar ideas. And Sarah talks, and I think this is, you know, the, the, pro the accessing engineering projects, an ideal outcome for them in terms of engineering messages, saying you need to use your initiative, it's about teamwork. Um, you work it out in small stages. So she's really understanding the, the processes involved in, in planning a project and working as an engineer. But I, th I think um, it's important to point out that these were students that already had an established sense of identity in STEM subjects. You know, this is reinforcing their identity. It's not a magic wand to create a new identity. 
They may work in that way earlier. These were year 9, 10 students. But I think it's a valuable tool in reinforcing it and actually perhaps showing students what possibilities there are in these subject areas. Now, in context with more informal attributes, pupils repeatedly described ambassadors as like friends, cousins, brothers and sisters, and this came up over and over again. But it didn't come up in the context with more formal attributes, and it was really notably absent in those contexts. Now, here comes the sociological bit. <laughs> um, so, Judith Butler talks about performativity uh, and she, she talks about how discourses take on new meanings and circulating in contexts from which they have been barred or in which they have been rendered unintelligible as performative subjects engage a deconstructive politics that intervenes in unsettled hegemon he hegemonic meanings. And I was interested to, to sort of consider these ambassador relationships and say well can these ambassadors, can performing these identities with ambassadors in these sort of problem-based learning contexts actually challenge these sort of hegemonic, gendered identities that are associated with these subjects. Um, I, I sort of suggest that actually, in some of these contexts, where, where pupils in, with a lot of informal attributes, which are carefully planned, where students are joining in with student ambassadors, that there is a joint performance, and they're quite powerful at reinforcing these identities and perhaps challenging um, previously held stereotypes about what these subjects entail. And to quote, to quote Louise, I think sort of potentially they could disrupt dominant discourses around science and the identity of the scientists and, and engineers in these contexts and interrupt dominant identity patterns of disidentification. And there's a lot of sort of accounts of how younger pupils were identifying with student ambassadors. Aisha says, and this is a train tracks event again, because we're students and they're students. I know they might not be the same age, but you kind of have the sense that they seem like us. And this is this is about a a student ambassador who she was working with, who was actually a young mother. She was in her late twenties, so she wasn't so close in age but, she, but they did share female Asian identities so I think that while the um, while the learning context was really significant in all of this that intersected with subject already established subject identities and gendered very much gendered but also ethnic cultural identities, subcultural identities all of these things interacted in this process of identification where it happened. Um, this is another account from one of the medical days that I went to. They understand what we need. When they talk freely, they don't talk really, really formal like. They speak how we do, and then one of them refers to how he heard one of them say butters, you know, slang, which obviously is particular sort of black vernacular English um, or slang, you know, that's used in in South East London. And it was interesting with the medical days because often the student ambassadors came from the same school as the students. So 
so you know there are real ways in for them to talk about teachers so they quite quickly build up these relationships but and this is going back to the mass workshops um, there was also kind of considerable disidentification in some contexts and in the mass workshops um, Letitia says I mean, it was quite interesting because this girl was very attractive, really nice, and they liked her a lot. They thought she was really good, one of the you know better students helping with maths. They rated her on that front. But when I sort of talked about, well, is she like you? It was very clear that they were disidentifying. You know, they were really disidentifying with her. And the teacher says she looks like a Miss P type. She'll talk about I don't eat animals, I eat miso, but she looks smart. I don't know, she looks like one of them girls that will speak to me about things I don't even care, like I don't eat meat and I don't do... Yeah, she's like organic people, the ones that kill their own chickens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, nobody knows whether she's vegetarian or not. You know, this is complete fiction. But it's interesting that I identify her with her particular white, middle-class type of girl. I saw her jogging. She's a vegetarian, but we like Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> So, you know, clear identification. And you can see how they're gendered, they're raced, they're, you know, they're classed. Um, and so you've got these, all these boundaries and processes. And I, I used Valerie Hayes' work. I don't know if anyone's read, but um, in the company she keeps, and she talks about girls' friendship groups and how actually identifying against other groups of girls is really important in, you know, processes of identity. And I think this goes back to the blue stocking girls and but what was interesting was that some of the student ambassadors were intensely girly, and I think because they were from African backgrounds, and, uh, and there's a sort of trajectory for African girls, particularly into petrochemical engineering, um, you know, they're, they're dressed in fairy outfits and, you know, really being very, very girly. But sort of, so I thought they were quite an interesting challenge to these kind of blue-stockinged engineering identities that you often found. But I think the learning context is key. I don't think, you know, from what I, from what I encountered, those relationships aren't going to form unless you get the learning context right. So, conclusions. Um, contemporary neoliberal discourses operate as regimes of truth within these HEIs. These dominant discourses position ambassadors as marketers and pupils as consumers, problematise pupils as lacking appropriate ambition, individualise success, ignore structural obstacles and can embed existing stratification within the HE sector. So this is not straightforward. Um, but I think working collaboratively with ambassadors in subject-specific contexts with informal attributes provides people with an opportunity to enact student and subject identities where pupils briefly take up new ways of being. And I suggest that this can be quite powerful but obviously how sustainable it is, again, is another question. Um, and how you deal with that and how you could use these sorts of activities to really build these identities is, is another question. So, but in these contexts, I would suggest that ambassadors can contribute to disrupting existing gendered, raised and class subject identities and interrupt dominant identity patterns of disidentification. But it's a bit straightforward. I hope that was um, okay.
Thank you so much, Claire. Again, a really rich presentation. And um, I'd like to do the same thing, just give us an opportunity to reflect on some initial thoughts uh, um, for, for fi five minutes or so, and then we'll come back for a plenary before we have our break. So five minutes for discussion. We have about 10, ten minutes for um, some questions, comments, reflections to Claire. Um, and again, can you please say who you are, um, just so we have a sense of um, where you, you know, your context. Um, so who wants to start? Louise. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I thought it was great. Um, and I was really struck by one of the quotes, which had... Well, Oh, so is it almost an evangelical meritocracy? The the girl who is talking about now, there's no barriers apart from in their heads, which I agree, offer is concerning because of the implications. Um, but have you got any ideas on how how should how could they be better supported? You know, because it feels like that could do quite a lot of damage. That sort of discourse, yeah. as well as it's been seen as enabling. Yes. What what should they be? What could they be encouraged to understand the issues? For those, well, I think that there's a danger with um, them being told in training, your role models, you know, this, your role models, because it becomes all about them and their, so the, the main resource they have to draw on is them and their experience, and so it really kind of encourages that evangel you know, the evangelism about themselves, and it was really well-intentioned, you know, they were really keen to help similar people to themselves, but you felt, well, you know, yes, it's really problematic. And I wondered, and this comes to the sort of whole careers advice and guidance agenda, obviously that's been completely dismantled and there isn't any anymore, um, you know, whether that would be a way of training student ambassadors to actually give them some, and that certainly happened with the Accessing Engineering project, that they were told about routes into engineering, so it wasn't just... You can be a medic or you can be a failure. You know, mm -hmm. um, there was a you can you could do this. Uh, you could go out at apprenticeship level. You could go out at this level. You could go. You know, you could go on and do a degree. You can stay in your own area and and do it. You know, stay with your family if that's what you want. You know, there's you could work for EDF Energy and do it this way. You know, I mean? you know that sort of more holistic view of the job opportunities. So whether that's a way forward. Um, I, I, I was inclined to think it could be, you know, to actually sort of provide them with more detailed information about careers specifically, so that they weren't just told to talk about yourself and how great you are. Can I ask you, do you know if any of these uh, STEM ambassador schemes incorporate sort of mentoring and coaching skills? for the, the ambassadors where they don't have all the answers and it's more to an alien conversation with, with the young people. A lot of the ambassadors were mentors as well, but I focused on the sort of group mentoring activities that ambassadors were undertaking, so I only went to training about that. So I don't know specifically what the training for mentors were, I'm afraid. Was, sorry. Um, I expect they had some training, although you know the, the, the type of training they got varied at the different institutions very much. Um, at, at Bankside it was much more detailed than at Royal, where it was sort of 
you know, pretty much just be yourself and off you go. Um, And I'm Sarah from Imperial College. Um, I was sort of um, kind of listening, and I have a bit of a strange role in Imperial, I suppose, because sociology is my background, so I'm a bit of an anomaly at Imperial. But um, we're talking a lot at the moment about student ambassadors and the role that student ambassadors should be playing. Um, and I think that this, these discourses that you're talking about, the sort of neoliberal kind of individualism, I made it so therefore, you know, anyone can, is, is sort of, um, it's, it's all pervasive. If you look at the people who have, um, are, are working in HE within STEM, that discourse is, is, is what you hear from them as well. And so it's not just, um, well, in my view, it's not just a... a, a an issue when talking about student ambassadors or school children or parents of school children. This is a much, much broader yes. issue. So when post Thatcher, yes. yeah, and she said, yeah, and and so when we talked as well about teaching of gender deconstruction, um, I used to teach sociology in, in schools. So that to me is such a pivotal thing as well. But. We, I don't even know where we begin with that when we look at kind of the institutional level of, of the discourse about individualism and, and, and working in STEM subjects. It's yes, it's a tricky one because it's all pervasive, yeah. isn't it, in the media. It's not just UK, is it? I mean, it's sort of global. I don't know, you know, how you start unpicking that. I suppose the more people are aware um, that it's, if you like, a, an ideology almost that we're kind of blindly you know, all being drawn into, I don't know. And to me it's sort of the marrying of aspects of social science and, and science. Mm. I, I think that that's an interesting one, that there's, you know, because I've been working with the um, World Academy of Engineering for, for a long time now, and there's, there's a lot of um, research that comes out from that community, which is very disconnected to what's happening in sociology so I think cross-pollination between the disciplines is really important because there's a lot of learning in sociology, psychology that would really usefully inform these debates but that you know there isn't as much crossover as you would think that there should be I mean I know that Louise you know everyone always cites Louise oh it's really interesting (laughs) so I think we're one of the first people that's sort of broken into that and kind of crossed those you know crossed those boundaries I think it happened in medical education yes yeah I think that this will be the last question for this session, and then we'll have our break. Um, I'm Jill Collins. I didn't say before, from, also from Sheffield, but from Sheffield Hammer. Um, I just want to say, actually, I've, I've got an email that I was thinking about on the way down on the train from um, a woman that I worked with at the Royal Aeronautical Society. Is, um, is it just emailing socially, and I spoke just starting my PhD, and she sort of said that, and I didn't realize you could do PhDs in the sort of thing that you do, or something that is really interesting, something that's not a STEMI thing, you know, she didn't see it as a, I remember the question though, was about um, the ambassadors, the age range of the ambassadors, I know when I walk around Sheffield had on, the people with the t-shirts on and everything were always the younger Students, and I wondered if there were many or any mature students. You mentioned one, I think, but yeah. a bit older. But uh, I'm kind of thinking about this idea of parachuting in people like us, putting them as close as possible in age range and that kind of simplistic formula. I just mm. wondered if there was. Yes, well, it was interesting that that girl who was probably 26 or 27 
you know, had such a powerful impact with this group of girls. So I think it's just very dangerous to sort of be drawn into this, these sort of very simplistic assumptions that, oh, if they're black and you're, you know, the students are black and if they're the same age and if they're the same gender, that it's going to work. And in fact, um, that girl Fabian, you know, had worked with this student ambassador, the one that was talking about customer services. And, you know, there was real hostility going on, you know, between some of those groups of girls and that ambassador. And it was about the learning context and the fact that these ambassadors were being put in sort of disciplinary roles with the young people and it was completely undermining any possibility for relationships to develop. So, you know, I think that, that, that there's a multi... You know, the more you can match, the better in lots of ways because I think it's not really about... The fact that they're black, or the fact, it's just common common ground to start conversations from. So if you know you're a fan of hip hop and they're fan, and you you both really like Tiny Temper or whatever, you know that's a starting point for conversation. And it was these small talk, these sort of conversations that were going on between the cracks of activities that were really helping to develop these relationships. And they were bound up with these young people's identities and often very gendered. You know, hair for girls. I love your hair, you know, mm-hmm. all that, and, and shoes, and you know, and football, football. I mean, they were typical small talk topics. But obviously, the more you, I mean, you, you know from your own experience in relationships, the more you have in common, the easier those conversations are to have. Okay, I think we'll stop there. Have-